welcome to this week's episode of Swig of Intellect. I'm Patrick DeButler, and I'm here with Lisa Gray. Hello, Patrick. How are you? I'm well, Lisa. How are you? I'm very well, listeners. Thanks again for joining us for a Swig of Intellect. Your conversation companion will share you the news you need to know, give you insights into the media sources that you should be following, and share a couple of shots of culture, ensuring that you have something else to talk about besides... Yeah, so what are we talking about this week? Well, apart from the fact that very quickly I wanted to mention it's episode 40. Wow. Yeah, the big 4-0 and our final episode of the regular first season of Swig of Intellect. We will be sending you a Christmas special, but we just wanted to let you know this is our last one of our regular podcasts. I think back to when we started and... It was even pre-COVID, yeah. it was pre-presidential election. Do you think we would have... Gosh, I think the years turned out completely different to what we imagined. I, I know, who would have guessed that we'd still be talking about lockdowns and COVID and Trump and etc. in you know the end of 2020. So it feels a bit like the Groundhog Day year. We uh, actually made a point of saying, let's make sure that we do different stories per episode. And uh, Exactly, I think we've had to search far and wide to, to find some slightly different <laughs> How do you spell COVID differently? <laughs> so, well, this week we're going to cover um, lockdown being nearly over and find out if it worked uh uk vaccinations arrive and we're also going to look at the australian sas war crimes what actually happened in afghanistan yeah really interesting topics but first of all as usual the source review and for our final source review of the year it's lisa's turn what have you got for us so for this week's source review i wanted to um look at something i've been reading about in the last few weeks as it's a brand that i think we're going to read about more and more it's um, and it's a trend on how journalists feel uh, feel safer reporting their news. Is this going to lead us down the path of more trustworthy news sources? Substack is the brand, and it's essentially a publishing platform. It calls itself a place for independent writing, uh, where you can start a newsletter, build a community, um, and make money from subscriptions. The publishing is free with no limits, and the platform only makes money when you do. Um, I thought their mission was quite interesting, so let me read from their site. We believe that writers, bloggers, thinkers and creatives of every background should be able to pursue their curiosity, generating income directly from their own audiences and on their own terms. When readers pay writers directly, writers can focus on doing the work they care about the most. A few hundred paying subscribers can support a livelihood. A A few thousand can make it lucrative. Readers win too. By opting into direct relationships with their writers, we can be more selective with how we consume our information honing in the, on the ideas the, um, and the places that we find most meaningful. I thought the why on how they've set up Substack was really interesting as well. Um, it refers to the trend of advertised-based journalism and how that's been the control of quality of newspapers for the last 180 years. The mass shift of advertising revenue to Google and Facebook had brought the news business to go into a crisis and they think that's created content farms and the fake news um, epidemic. Just as damaging as that, in the eyes of consumers, journalistic content has lost much of its perceived value, especially as measured in dollars. Um, they they believe what they read is matters read matters, which we do as well. And we believe that there are there's never been a better time to bolster and protect those ideals. Now more than ever, ever, publishers of news and similar content can be made profitable through direct payments from readers. In fact, they are so convinced by this notion that they started a company to accelerate the advent, which way, which they are convinced is the new golden age for publishing. And this is Substack. So basically. 
Um, so three years ago, Substack started uh, with one, um, one subscription newsletter by a fellow named Bill Bishop, who was co-founder of Market Watch, and it was reports to on China um, for, for his subscribers. Today, it hosts thousands of newsletters, um, uh, newsletter writers. In recent months, several high-profile journalists have quit their jobs at established publications to launch themselves on Substack. Substack claims that its, um, that its various writers' pages attract millions of readers each week. It also says that newsletters it hosts are more than um, 250,000 paid subscribers between them. Substack's most impressive boast is that um, the top 10 paid for newsletters are bringing in more than 7 million a year collectively. The Press Gazette describes Substack as imagine a media where that a media world where thousands of journalists make a living by writing about niche subject areas and sending out to regular newsletters to paying subscribers. The deal is that you hook people with a free version and then sign them in up to fifty or maybe a hundred bucks a year. Um, and you know, Wired um, was the first uh, first publication that brought me uh, my attention to it. Who were talking about how we're in this Substack moment. I also um, I'm going to include in our uh, in our newsletters um, at below is Sean Monaghan's uh, uh, profile on when he started his Substack subscription a couple of weeks ago. He um, he mentioned he said he had friends text him saying congratulations on the launch. To which he responded, "Yeah, thanks. It's a blog." And another one pinged, "You've joined the movement," um, which um, which is really I think is really quite interesting. So conclusion for me is I have to remember I was romantic about YouTube and Facebook when they started regarding the opportunity and the freedom to communicate with anyone, um, with with whoever, wherever they are. But we live in a time where we see the downside to this freedom through misinformation. But is that all to do with the business model of advertising revenue? Can subscriptions be powerful enough to hold the writer accountable or will Substack need a fact check too? So yes, Patrick. This is when I read about it. I was like, I really want to talk to you about this as a model. Yeah, um, it's it sounds it sounds very very. I'm I'm very curious about it. So in order to join Substack, do you know whether you have to prove that you're already a journalist, or how does it work? Well, when I looked into it um, over the last couple of days, anyone can join. Okay. So that's that's the uh, anyone can join, and then the belief is that you get more writers by making sure your quality of writing is substantial. Uh, what I, I know I've worked at media publications, I've worked at media broadcast companies and you know and we've talked a lot about in the last couple of weeks the power of the people that own them. So the fact that this seems to be an independent platform I think I guess for my side of thinking is quite exciting and encouraging. But then it's putting a lot of onus on the writer to take responsibility for what they're talking about. Um, I absolutely have been at the helm of advertising dollars influencing what I create and I know that they do and they're quite powerful but if but I also see the opportunity of um, of good quality writing and good quality content cutting through all the different models of of, of free free content I, I I find the idea actually very attractive um, of journalists being able to to put out their own um, content without having to go through the editorial restrictions that you have at a traditional newspaper or news source. So I could imagine actually there's probably a lot of flexibility doing Substack. I'll have to go and look at it and see. But what I'm quite curious is in journalism, normally you have the benefit of having an infrastructure at a traditional media source. So you've got a newsroom budget, you've got everything that a newspaper or a news media source. So how, how easy will it be for journalists to be able to do journalists independently? That's why you should, yeah, have a look at the article by the journalist at The Guardian who started a Substack subscription. I don't think it's going to be something where 
you will earn your enough money to have a livelihood for the first um, first first couple of weeks, let alone months. I also think like um, influencers um, on social media, it was the ones that were famous on television that got the numbers really quickly for people to be for Kim Kardashian to take, make more money out of her Instagram than she does out of her TV show. So I think we'll see a migration of journalists um, who are already established, like we already have seen on Substack. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see the kind of the quality of writing as they cross over compared to what we've known them for and 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 what we see them as now. Um, I do hope there's the opportunity to for it to be a launch pad for new writers, like I guess YouTube launched new careers for talent that normally wouldn't have got a look in. But um, but I, I think for me, um, I was I I I I posed I poised at the fact of understanding how much advertising um, dollars has absolutely affected what we're reading and what what kind of media we're consuming. Almost, and this is almost also going back to a patronage model, really, isn't it? Yes, no, I I find that idea fantastic. It's my only question that I I really can't see how it works with it is that if you want to do really good investigative journalism, for example. Um, until you built up enough subscriptions and made enough money to potentially do it on your own and then grow even more. It's more the financial model because the the great advantage that you have is, for example, if you're the Washington Post and you're Woodward and Bernstein, you have the money that's provided and the assets that are provided by the Washington Post. You're not doing your journalism independently. So let's say really an investigative journalism is really important because a lot of journalism nowadays is opinion. It's a big criticism of the New York Times is that they tend to put forward tons of opinion pieces. The Guardian puts forward a lot. Opinion pieces you can do from home and you're looking at other content. And The Economist, for example, that's a big criticism of it, is that they don't actually do much of their own investigative journalism. What they do is report on other people's investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. So my, my question is, journalism can't rely just on you being able to be at home writing articles. So what I'd like to see or understand is, say, if a Substack model is going to be the future, is how that would work in order to fund uh, investigative journalism. I agree. I agree. Maybe maybe Substack's going to be the place for... Um, for uninfluenced um, uh, opinion pieces. It sounds like a great idea. And, I, I find it really attractive, yeah, actually, the, the idea of Substack. But, but, but maybe maybe those media brands um, that we talk about, um, the big media houses, are going to be the homes of investigative journalism. Mm. But hopefully they, they will hold the media brands that have been too influenced by advertising revenue a little bit more accountable when it comes to investigative journalism. That's and what I'm hoping. I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that would be great. You know, for example, it, it's it's another thing, Carlos Slim, who's, you know, one of the biggest, if not, I think, the richest, who was the richest man in the world now, is one of them, owns quite a large part of the New York Times, and you'll never see any articles in the New York Times about him and his businesses. So I absolutely, you know, as the Roman said, um, who watches the Watchmen, so you have to have someone constantly paying attention. So maybe this is a form of journalism which will be really good for, for journalists to be able to publish whatever and if there's an audience for it they'll have to live or die by the audience that they can grow and which you would hope would reward quality but also give them independence Talking it out though I think we have to keep in mind um, Mark Zuckerberg's lack of accountability when things got really bad and mm-hmm. misinformation on his platform so it'll be really interesting to see in the future how we navigate if there are some movements like um, QAnon or, mm-hmm. or um, that are quite dangerous that people start subscribing to, what is the role of that platform in holding that accountable? Especially 
uh, for it being an online platform because that's when we get into like that's influenced globally no country takes responsibility of that how do we navigate that so yes exactly a, a traditional media sources normally are supposed to have fact checkers they have editors you get fired for example if you're found out to have done a lie if you're Jason Blair or you've invented so yes exactly that's a really good point Lisa is, is what will be the responsibility of Substack if journalists build up a huge audience but they're telling things which are patently untrue well we'll keep an eye on it won't we at a speak of intellect <laughs> we will we will but thank you that's a really interesting one to have brought Lisa so on to Swig of the News. Uh, we got some exciting news overnight. The first doses of the vaccine will arrive in the next coming days in the UK. And apparently we are the first European country to agree to it, which yep, is exciting. That's, that's what I read as well. Yeah, the UK has bought 40 million doses of the vaccine, which has been shown to have 95% efficacy. Does that have us exactly, yes. in, in, in its trials? Wow, I pronounced something correct. <laughs> how, are you, how are you feeling about this? Listen, I mean, I, I'm all for the vaccine. I think it's really interesting. So they chose the Pfizer one. And listen, let's let's see how it works. I, I was reading up on, on how it works and, and the timing of the doses will be quite important. And I think, of course, there's going to be all the worries that, you know, we will be the first ones trialing out the vaccine. But fingers crossed, you know, it works. And, and you know, let's hope that science triumphs and all is well with the vaccine and, and, and you know, it works well and we can all sort of end this lockdown nightmare and really start, you know, getting on with our lives again. So we're at the end of the lockdown, another lockdown. Do you think it's worked? Listen, no. I mean, I, I haven't been for it. I think the government's uh, tier system and, and the lockdown measures have been a mess. I think the second lockdown wasn't taken anywhere near as seriously as the first one, and, and quite rightly. And also we're seeing it with the major Tory revolt over Boris Johnson's tier system. Um, yesterday, the vote in the Commons was the biggest Tory revolt since he's become prime minister over it. Um, no, I, I can't I can't say it has. I think I think it's been terribly put in place. I'm I'm haven't been for it and I think I think the second one was a disaster in the way it was implemented and, and thought through and I can't say I was thrilled about the first one. Um, so in my particular case I'm really praying that the vaccine does work and works well and that we can sort of get out of this whole lockdown madness and then take a long hard look at what government response was in the UK and worldwide and see what you know can be done in the future. I agree. I think it's been unnecessarily complicated. Um, being an Australian, connecting with my family who have been enjoying their lives for the last couple of months where they were like, how's lockdown going? <laughs> um, I haven't known how to answer that because I'm like, I don't know. I feel like we're told all these different versions of information. It's almost like that person that tells you what you want to hear and you're like, are you telling me the truth? That's what I feel like my relationship yes. has been with the government. And I think, you know, also reading this morning that the UK um, total COVID death has surpassed 75,000, which I remember when we were talking about it being 50,000 and that being scary. That is scary for me. And I, I'm just, and I, I also am watching people who are in my life's mental health just be confused by the situation and heightened by this as well. So whilst we are looking at, you know, getting the vaccination is going to be one cure, but we're going to have to really keep an eye on how this has affected our mental health as a community as well. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, as we've said ever from, from the very beginning, there's going to be so much data that's going to have to be studied and studied very carefully because out of those 75,000 COVID deaths, how many of them were due purely to COVID? How many of them were because of secondary ailments or other conditions which led to it? I mean, you know, for example, there was the story recently of um, a care worker who'd gone to India to work. He'd caught COVID very badly, was really ill, and then 
got bitten by a cobra and, you know, went blind from the cobra, was dying of the poisoning, but his death got listed as a COVID death. And, you know, it's just a, a small example of we're going to have to sort out through so many things. And there's still so many things which are completely wrong. The idea that a scotch egg will count as a meal in pubs so you can drink 10 pints and you'll be able to have one scotch egg. And they're all sorts of, you know, useless things which are going on. The board game over Christmas, somebody somewhere in the halls of government has decided that, you know, great, you can have Christmas together, but you can't play board games because that's really what's driving COVID. There's so many things which are going to have to be studied and looked at, which really don't make any sense. And I think we're, we're going to be able to spend a lot of time and, you know, scientists and governments will have to spend a lot of time going through everything that's happened. And I think it's going to take us years as well. I mean, another article that I shared with you this week was about how the high profile um, in, um Thank you. Um, <laughs> he led Sweden's no lockdown strategy has been sidelined <laughs> by the government after his prediction that greater immunity would mean a lighter second wave was proved badly wrong. I think um, I think we're, we're because I guess the um, COVID is a living, breathing thing, and mm. so it's going to take us years to understand. Maybe we'll never understand it. Um, that we will we we just we just have to. Hopefully, this vaccination and testing will help us. Just I guess. Uh, be more in control of the situation yes. and, and, and hopefully move forward from it. I agree. Um, so we'll, I think we'll probably have lots more COVID talk to talk about in the future. <laughs> yeah. It's not over it's yet. It's not going anywhere, any, anywhere anytime soon. Um, you brought us an interesting article about uh, Kira Bell, who won the landmark case against the NHS. Yes, I, I just wanted to cover it because I thought it was a very interesting one. So Kira Bell was a man who transitioned into a woman and took hormone blockers and then said she she um, regretted her decision for doing it. So she sued the NHS for the only program that the NHS has to do with it and won actually in a, what's been called a landmark case. And the case basically says that it's completely irresponsible to be giving hormone blockers and doing major surgery on teenagers. And it's really interesting because there's been a lot of arguments over this. And generally, people on the right have been quite against it, people on the left who've been a little bit more loose. But it's it's been a really, really interesting case. Um, I don't know what side you fall on it, Lisa. To me, it's always seemed like common sense that when you're a child or even a teenager, you're so in flux anyway that the idea that you would be allowed to do major surgery and to take very serious medication and hormone blockers, to me, has always seemed like a very dangerous idea. When you're an adult, it's a different question and, you know, you have individual responsibility. But I do think that for someone who's a teenager, it can be a very complicated thing. And I'm not sure it's necessarily right, from my opinion, to allow children uh, in America, in some cases as young as nine or ten, to be able to go on very serious hormone blockers because they say they feel they're in the wrong sex and then to have major surgery in their very early teens through transitioning. I agree. I agree. I think back to when I, like my, my only reference point, uh, well, a few, I teach a lot of young people. I also as think back to when I was a teenager and think about the decisions I was making. I wasn't ready to make such a monumental decision like this. So I, I don't think it's a sign of we're becoming more conservative with the movement. I think it's just we're becoming a lot more mindful about at what times in our lives do we make these decisions? I mean, overnight, uh, Ellen Page um, announced herself to the world as Elliot Page, and she's been someone who's um, been lucky enough to be given the resources to explore that, and I think it sounds like it's been very considered and very 
very mindful of her to be able to do that, which is great. Um, but she's she's an adult. Yes, and I, I think also Elliot's case was that he was saying that when he was still a woman and still Ellen Page, he'd also been outed against his will by Brett Ratner, the the producer, and so there'd been a lot of other things. But I I, I, I think this is also a broader point, which is we've discussed once or twice on the show, which is to do with technology has reached a point where ethics um, hasn't necessarily caught up. Yes, and I think I think there's so many major discussions to be had about it. And the only I agree, it's not a question about being conservative. I think it's just a question about being careful. I agree. I absolutely agree. So, um, and look, uh, by the time we get back next year, I think we'll be in Brexit town, won't we? Yes, we will be. Yes. Yeah. So we're starting to see some of the truths of Brexit uh, reveal itself. There are some, um, we, we will include an article about uh, the new immigration bill that Priti Patel, one of our favourite people on a swig of intellect, um, has 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 put in place, and it's going to and, and it's going to cause, from what I understand, some British families unable to return to the UK. Yes, I mean, there's been there's been a lot of questions. I also saw quite quite ironically and, and quite a funny story that they're shooting a movie about Princess Diana, quite a big one on the continent, and they said no British actors need apply for the roles of William and, and Harry and Diana because they didn't think they might have the right to work and etc., <laughs> which I thought was very funny, and I think a lot of people did as well. It's, it's going to be the big question, what happens now? Uh, negotiations are quite tense, quite complicated. There's lots of problems going on over the fishing rights. There'll be lots of problems over the movement. Uh, what's going to happen with the right to buy a second property in Europe? And there are all sorts of complications which haven't been ironed out, which will take time. But it does seem that, you know, you will have to pay quite close attention if you have a British passport to what you have to do. And from what I've read a lot, it would be a lot like being an American or anyone else. You'll come to, you'll apply for a visa to go to Europe and... And yes, um, there, there will be complications and it'll be a brave new world and we're going to have to figure it out. Um, I, and I believe you applied for your life in the UK test. The last yes, I had, to, I had to do my, I, my plan to do my life in the UK test anyway um, for someone who's gone to school and grown up uh, in England and I think who to a lot of people sounds very English. I did do my life in the UK test just because I thought it was a good time to do it. Um, so listeners, to put a bit of perspective into how quickly Patrick did the test, it took me about 40 minutes. Patrick, how long did it take you? No, because I don't want to seem like I'm gloating. Uh, <laughs> Come on. No, I can't, I can't say. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, I enjoyed doing it. I, I thought it was, it was fun to do it. And, and it was, it was actually a lot simpler than I'd been led to believe because I'd seen a lot of people be really worried that they were asking lots of trick questions. Um, and so, so I was actually reassured to see the co- questions were actually quite common sense from my point of view. Well, I think for me, as a person that tends to complicate anything I do, that's what I was worried about, that they were so simple <laughs> that I was going to look for the deeper meaning in them. Like, mm-hmm. I got stumped at the, um, what is the national meal, at the options of fish and chips or roast. And I was mm-hmm. like, but if I watch Coronation Street, it's fish and chips, <laughs> you know? They're like, no, Lisa, remember it's a roast, remember it's a roast. So mm-hmm. I thought that stuff was interesting and it's made me a better um, player in, um, in pub quizzes. So. Exactly. Trivial Pursuit and pub quizzes. Now you'll be able to ace them. <laughs> yeah. um, just get your life in the UK handbook. Absolutely. And and the one of the other um, stories we wanted to cover was one that you brought my attention to, the Australian SAS war crimes in Afghanistan. Yes. Um, so this is a big story. I've, I've been talking to it uh, with Australian family and friends. And so basically the Brereton report came out, which is an Australian report, governmental report into war, alleged war crimes in Afghanistan 
between 2005 and 2016. So they allege that at least 25 SAS soldiers, um, Australian SAS soldiers, have been guilty of killing over 39 um, Afghani civilians during the war there, and it's caused quite a scandal. A, pub a photograph was published in The Guardian yesterday of an Australian SAS soldier drinking from the prosthetic leg um, of a civilian that he'd killed and drinking beer from it. And there are other photos which are quite horrific of unarmed civilians being um, gagged and tied on the ground and then shot in the head by Australian soldiers. And so the report is causing quite a bit of scandal. Scott Morrison will have the final say on what happens. He hasn't made a decision yet, but he's going over the report now as we speak. But as we were saying, uh, this is part of the way that modern warfare is run uh, as well by the Americans who have had problems in the British, is that modern warfare often because governments don't want to send occupying forces, they send in special forces. And special forces are trained for one reason, which is to kill. Special forces are like a scalpel. You don't use them as an occupying force, which they were used as in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's not a justification at all of what's happened, but I think this will have to lead into a review about how special forces are used and in what role in these zones. Because if these claims turn out to be true, and there does seem to be a lot of evidence, uh, it is quite a shocking um, behaviour that was done by the, the Australian soldiers. I might sound really naive saying this, but I've never understood, well, uh, the, the role of, um, especially, I guess, in the last 15, 20 years, of when Western countries come into these situations to to help, I guess, a, 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 a local government become more democratic. You think after Vietnam we would have become a lot more sound at that. Of course, some countries, when they have dictatorships, do need their support, but I've always gotten quite frustrated at the assumption of sometimes, from where I'm standing, um, that one culture is better than the other within a, within a community. Um, and so when I read articles like this, it's just, it's, it, yeah, it really, really upsets me. Yeah, I mean, look, war is not a pretty business in any shape or form. I think that's been the excuse for the behavior of a lot of a lot of troops and funnily enough i mean if you want to bring up vietnam as an example it's quite interesting because in vietnam a lot of massacres were actually committed by regular troops as well as special forces troops and there's some quite extraordinary stories including one of the presidential candidates in the late 80s um, and early 90s who ran against bill clinton on the democratic side who was a former navy seal and who basically had committed war crimes and it was hidden up by his colleagues in the senate but warfare has it, I think the, the ultimate lesson is that in warfare, nothing is ever pretty. It's not a pretty thing to go to war, but we do have a responsibility um, to try and police it. And, and it's just a terrible thing to have happened because now it's the longest war in American history by quite, quite a length. Um, and Australia was a big ally you know, of, of George Bush's famous uh, or infamous alliance, probably. And, and it's just it's, it's a very sad fact of life in an already complicated country and complicated war that never seems to end that... You know, there's always more complications. Well, with um, and then lastly, we're going to look at Hong Kong, which is um, you know, a region that we've been keeping an eye on for the whole year, uh, and we wanted to bring the listeners' attention to uh, how a court in Hong Kong has sentenced pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong to 13.5 months in prison after he pleaded guilty to organising and inciting an unauthorised assembly outside a police station during mass protests against the government in June last year. An unauthorized assembly. Mm. Well, I mean, this is. A, I think this is a topic you and I both really want to talk about because we feel there's not enough discussion of Hong Kong and what's going on 
and listen, yes, I mean, now it, it really does seem like the era of democracy is truly ending uh, or has ended already in Hong Kong. And Joshua Wong's imprisonment is just another sign of mainland China. Now I think the Taiwanese are really worried because it seems like the dominoes are falling in that region. Australia is having a very difficult and very tense time with China. The, Aust uh, the Chinese uh, mocked Scott Morrison with very rude uh, photographs, the official Chinese government. And um, that's caused, and, and it does seem like the region is, is going to get, and you know, this is the rise of China. It's the fall of, of the old democracies, which were set up by the West and former colonial territories. And let's see what happens. But anyway, it seems like it's a very sad situation with not enough attention being paid to it. Let's see from the American point of view. I mean, Donald Trump's record is not stellar, as we know, on pro-democracy, as he tends to talk about his favorite dictators, um, as we know full well. Um, so, so let's see. And uh, there was one very final story which I didn't, I didn't add, which was um, something I, I, I wanted to post uh, this morning and which I forgot to, but which was, um, so an ally, I don't know if you saw this story, uh, but it, this is coming back home closer to Europe, but an ally of Viktor Orban, a Hungarian MEP, very heavily bearded, uh, was caught jumping from a window at an orgy in Brussels and uh, then tried to get his way out of the police saying that he was an MEP and had diplomatic uh, immunity and was working really hard on the Brexit negotiations. And the police said, sure, you were working really hard, we can tell. So apparently 25 people were involved in this, what the Daily Telegraph very helpfully called a gangbang uh, on its front page. You can imagine the British press had a field day with it. Um, you know, so sort of Brussels, Auburn, MEP, caught in an orgy, but apparently quite a few people working on the Brexit negotiations on the European side were caught in Brussels being very naughty uh, but anyway it's become it turned into a big story and, and a really big maybe? joke I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know if you'll get away with it but anyway it's caused enormous mirth in the British press um, I, I will add a link to it but I really recommend if you want to see British journalism at its best uh, this this is it everything gets slotted into the headlines no pun intended uh, it's it's perfect British journalism at its peak on Amazing. a great European story. Uh, you couldn't make it up. It sounds like the thick of it. It's better than that. Um, so we will have a link. If you want to have a laugh, just please take a look. Sounds like a good one to end the year with. So Exactly. Very festive. <laughs> so now onto our time capsule. Patrick, what have you bring you from the past? So from the past, I wanted to bring a, a lighter note. So for those of you who know what mooning is, uh, mooning is when you show your bare bottom as an insult to people. You have murals and people do it all the time. Marlon Brando was a great fan of it. Uh, so mooning is... To, practiced by teenagers all over the world but what I was you know discovered completely by accident that it actually has a very long and ancient history and a very serious one and the first ever recorded historical case of mooning was a Roman soldier in 66 AD who was part of the occupying Roman forces in Palestine decided to moon Jewish pilgrims when they were going now of course the Jewish pilgrims didn't take very kindly to this and started a big revolt and the Roman forces, of course, decided to, to really knock down the revolt and it caused the death of thousands and thousands of people. And I looked at it and apparently there have been examples of mooning causing real problems on the Fourth Crusade in, 10, in about 1060 something. There was another um, incident of mooning on the way to the Holy Land, which again caused a result and a revolt and thousands of deaths. But anyway, I just thought it was quite funny, you know, the idea of this Roman centurion, you know, deciding to moon Jewish pilgrims and <laughs> led to, to, to this death. And who realized that mooning, which we took as an innocuous, you know, fun activity, uh, has actually been responsible for quite a few massacres and tragedies historically. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But I can't help it. I, it's not too soon. It's 66 AD, I think. <laughs> I think we can maybe. 
have a little laugh now. Maybe we can. Uh, so from the future, I read this week that uh, a scientist in Korea, Soon Min Lee, has created a microorganism that, that could transform used cardboard boxes into a substance that can be easily refined into biofuel. Um, as of today, the US makes most of its biofuel from fermenting corn and ethanol. Ethanol is used um, cut into more typical gasolines and it represents about 10% of all gas sold in the US. But creating ethanol is not the most efficient of processes as it taps into a food source of energy with real consequences. Um, uh, how does it work? This uh, actually sugar traps inside the cardboard boxes, specifically glucose and um, xylose, I think it's called. And the yeast is able to transform these sugars into combustible fats used in biodiesel. Researchers have found this um has tried this approach before, but microorganisms were unable to process the xylose. Since about one third of the sugar in cardboard is xylose, that is left as an untapped energy. So I think this is quite exciting, especially all the um, Amazon boxes I've received in the last mm -hmm. couple of months. Um, and I, I'm, I'm all about um, creating products that can actually be reused into different things. I think it's a part of the future. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting story, and it, it's great to see how hopefully science will be able to solve so many of these problems, including with fuel, which is so important. Um, that's a really great story. Thank you, Lisa. Um, so now, Lisa, what's your shot of culture for this week? Your last one. My last one is I've started listening to Barack Obama's A Promised Land. Uh, he's I not only love his voice, <laughs> but he's incredibly candid and human about the challenges he's had as president. I'm like up to chapter nine, but I only started listening to it a couple of days ago. And he is, you know, it's li it's interesting to li listen to him on his own terms, I guess going to the Substack's point. Mm -hmm. He is quite, uh, he talks about when he mucked up, he talks about when people were quite ruthless against him. And it's really nice to hear just another perspective of a person that we see, we've seen on a pedestal for a couple of years. And also I'm really curious to see his response to Trump winning by so much in the 2016 election and seeing how he felt about that, what meant for his legacy. Yes, I saw. So he, he's uh, split it into two volumes, hasn't he? So this is the first volume. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll be definitely getting the second one. Okay. Okay. How about you? What's your shot of culture? So my shot of culture. So you recommended um, The Queen's Gambit to me, which is on Netflix, which I absolutely adored. I raced through it. I loved every episode and moment of it. I thought it was fantastic. And I decided to look it up and I didn't realize that the writer of it was a writer called Walter Tevis, who's actually one of my favorite writers. Ah. He wrote The Color of Money, The Hustler, which were made into oh, movies with Paul great. Newman and Tom Cruise, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was made into a brilliant Nicholas Rogue movie with David Bowie. And um, so he was this fantastic writer, didn't write many novels, but he actually wrote a novel which I read as a teenager, which I absolutely loved and I'd completely forgotten about until I looked him up on The Queen's Gambit. And I really, really recommend it. So First of all, do, go and listen to Lisa's uh, recommend and watch The Queen's Gambit. But if you want more of his stuff, he wrote this brilliant, brilliant novel called Mockingbird. And Mockingbird is a novel, I think, believe he wrote it in the 80s, which is set in a 25th century New York, which is completely dilapidated, run down, has gone back to nature. And what's happened is that humanity lost the desire um, to read and humanity went illiterate and it's a very technologically advanced so um, the story is concerned with an android who's lived for centuries and who wants to commit suicide 
And basically the android meets a human being who taught themselves how to read using a Rosetta Stone or a similar plot device. And it's all about their relationship and what happens in the thing. And the book is really about the rediscovery of reading and about why reading is so fundamental to the human experience. Um, but it's this extraordinary story. Um, Walter Tavis, as a sci-fi writer, was also very much ahead of his time. He wrote one other novel, sci-fi novel, which is about the rise of China and why China would become the world's superpower, which is also a really good book. But I, I really recommend this one for anyone who would be interested in that sort of thing and wants to read a really good sci-fi, but really about the joys of reading and why in a world where it's true that the statistics can still be incredibly shocking when it comes to books, um, in America, I think it's estimated that somewhere around 75% of U.S. adults above the age of 18 will never read another book in their lifetime. And, you know, extraordinary statistics. They, they did even university graduates. I think sometimes it's down to about 50% of American university graduates read a book or two a year for pleasure at the most. And so the literacy figures in America are quite shocking, but all over the world reading is in very, um, very precarious state. Um, so anyway, I just really recommend it. It's a really interesting story. And as you know, everybody on the podcast knows reading is my great passion in life. So Yeah, me too. I mean, I do listen to a lot more books than you. <laughs> Why not? I, I love, audiobooks are great. I mean, they're yeah. fantastic. And there's so many good audiobooks. Um, but I'm so much richer for them. Yeah. You know, I think that's been um, so super important. And great. Thank you. I, I will definitely look that up over the break. So thank you listeners for listening to our first series of A Swig of Intellect. Yes, absolutely. And we'll be back in January with season two. Yes. Maybe with some slight modifications to the format. We don't know yet. So yes. maybe it'll be a surprise. Stay tuned, everyone. Stay tuned, everyone. But thank you for sticking with us. It's We've had a lot of fun and we're always open to feedback. So please send us uh, your thoughts on how we've gone. And we will see you next year. I'm Lisa Gray. And I'm Patrick DeButler. See you next year. See you next year.